You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter two. And we're looking at verses thirteen to sixteen, and we've entitled this message, What Does It Mean to Believe the Bible? And this is part two of this message. And last week um, the subtitle was Good News, Bad Sad News, Bad News. <laughs> so we're gonna look at all those uh, hopefully this week and next. Um, I heard of two fishermen, two older men that went out. Mute this a second. Let's see here. Okay. I heard of two fishermen that went out on a Sunday morning. They went fishing one Sunday. And they were out on the lake, and the sun started beating down on them. Finally, one fisherman turned to the other, and he says, You know, I really feel guilty that we're not in church this morning. And the other one, who wasn't really much of a church-going man anyway, said, Well, you know what? If it's bothering you that much, just say a prayer or something. And the fish, that's a good idea. I think I'll do that. I'll, I'll, I'll recite the Lord's Prayer. And the other fisherman laughed. He goes, yeah, right, as if you know it. And the fisherman went, I know the Lord's Prayer. Everybody knows the Lord's Prayer. Well, I bet you don't know it. I bet you can't remember the words to it. And the fisherman said, well, sure, I'll bet you five bucks I can. Well, you're on. Go ahead. So the fisherman kind of looked up to heaven Lowered his voice a little bit, and he said, Now I lay me down. And the other fisherman interrupted him and said, All right, all right, I know. I I guess you do know it. You win. Here's my five bucks. (laughs) Now, I tell you that goofy little story because of the mere fact that we have a lot of people today that really don't have a good grasp of what the Bible teaches, nor really even what the Bible is. We have a major disconnect today in our society, in the church and out, between the inspired, the infallible, the inerrant word of God and our faith. It's just fact. We see it outside the church, but we also see it inside the church. Um, That should trouble us as a church. Because our name is Grace Bible Church, right? So if people aren't connecting to the Word of God, they are not connecting to the Bible, then that should concern any believer. Um, Years ago, a nationwide survey of Americans by the Barna Research Group discovered that 58% of Americans do not know who preached the Sermon on the Mount. They also found out that most Americans cannot identify the names of the first four books of the New Testament. It's the Gospels, right? (laughs) Let's recite them. Just testing you. What are they? Matthew, Luke, John. Yes, thank you. That was a little light, but we'll work on that. (laughs) They also found out that half of all adults, 52%, did not know that the book of Jonah was actually in the Bible. They also found out that nearly half, 48% of adults, did not know that the book of Thomas was not in the Bible. Seven out of ten adults 
did not know that the expression, you probably heard this expression, God helps those who help themselves. They didn't know that that was not in Scripture. That's not a verse in Scripture. And as our introduction here today, I just want to share a little bit. Some of this is in your notes and some of it isn't, but a little bit of evidence that we have to support the true nature of the Word of God. Um, We'll get to the outline eventually, but I want to share with you, first of all, some, it's both internal and external evidence that this book we hold in our hand is truly the Word of God. And this is important because if this is the Word of God, unlike any other book, then we should have a little more interest in it. We should enjoy gathering together as believers and what? Opening this book and studying it together to see what God's letter to us personally means and says to our hearts. And so there's some internal evidences, which are three, and you can write these down if you want. There's um, probably not enough room in there on the outline, but you can scribble them somewhere. One of the internal evidences that the Bible is truly God's word is its unity. It's unity. Just write down unity. Even though it's really 66 individual books, right, written on three continents in three different languages over a period of approximately 1,500 years by more than 40 authors who came from a lot of different backgrounds, ways of life, the Bible remains one unified book from beginning to end without, and this is important, contradiction. Without contradiction. And this unity is unique from all other books. You're not going to find another book that has such unity. And it's the evidence that it has a divine origin. That these are the words of God. That men moved by the Holy Spirit recorded for us. So the first internal evidence is its unity. Secondly... Not only its unity, but it indicates, the internal evidence indicates that the Bible is truly God's word, is this. Just write down the word prophecy. 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 Unity. Prophecy. The Bible contains hundreds of detailed prophecies relating to the future of various nations, of various cities, And really, all mankind. These are prophecies you can actually read in the Word of God. And a prophecy is something, in the context we're talking about, is something that's foretold before it happens. There's other prophecies in the Word of God, and we looked at some of these leading up to Resurrection Sunday, did we not? Um, That concern the coming of the Messiah, the Savior, um, telling us everything. Uh, about him, his, his birth, his death. Unlike the prophecies found in other religious books or by other men such as Nostradamus or any of those people, biblical prophecies are extremely detailed. You know, you, you hear it every year, right, before the first of the year. You have all these quacks come out. And they're on talk shows. And well, this next year, there's, there's going to be illness. You know, they don't say where. They don't say to what extent. And, you know, it's just very general statements. Okay. 
Well, the Bible's not that way. It's extremely detailed, the prophecies in the Bible. There are over 300 prophecies concerning Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Over 300, about one man. Not only was his lineage foretold and where he would be born, but also how he would die and how he would rise again. I mean, there's no real logical way to explain the fulfilled prophecies in Scripture other than citing its divine origin. There's no other religious book with the amount of detailed, predictive prophecies that have been fulfilled that the Bible contains. So we have unity, we have prophecy. The third internal evidence of the divine origin of Scripture, of the Bible, is its unique authority and power. Now the first two points weren't really that subjective, but this is. It's a little more subjective than the first two. But it has a powerful testimony, the Word of God. I'm sure we could spend time, if we had time here this morning, and start up front here and go around and, and give testimony how the word of God has affected your life, how the gospel has changed your life. The Bible's authority is like any, like unlike any other book here on the face of the earth. And the power can be seen in its countless ways that has been people's lives have been supernaturally transformed. Drug drug addicts have been cured by it. Homosexuals have been set free. Derelicts and deadbeats have been transformed by it. Hardened criminals have been reformed by it. Sinners have been rebuked by it. And hate has been turned to love by the word of God. The Bible does possess a dynamic and transforming power that is only possible The only possible explanation is that it truly is the word of God, that it is living. There's also some external evidences that the Bible is the word of God. We have unity, prophecies, and the authority and power that it contains, but also the external evidence, first of all, is the historicity of the Bible. The historicity of the Bible. Because the Bible records detailed historical events, not general, detailed, its accuracy is subject to verification. And it's been verified like any other, more than any other historical document through archaeological evidence, through extra biblical writings, those writings that are outside of the Bible. The historical accounts of the Bible proved have been proved time and time again to be accurate and true. In fact, all of the archaeological and manuscript evidence supports supporting the Bible makes it the best documented book from the ancient world that we have today. That the Bible accurately records historically verifiable events helps substantiate its claim to be the very word of God, the infallible, inerrant word of God. Because it's inspired by God. Secondly, not just the historicity of the Bible, 
but is the integrity of the human authors. The integrity of the human authors. God used humans, just like you and I, who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, to record his word so that we could have it today. And when you stop and you start to study the lives of the authors of Scripture, you find them to be honest, you find them to be sincere. As a matter of fact, they were willing to die, often excruciating deaths for what they believe the Bible testifies. The men who wrote the New Testament and many hundreds of other believers, 1 Corinthians 15, 6, knew the truth that their message, the truth of their message, because they had spent time with who? The risen Lord, after he had rose from the dead. It verified everything that he had said and that was written in Scripture. Seeing the risen Christ had a tremendous impact on them. They went from, think about it, the disciples were, you know, you had ones like Peter, oh, I'll never leave you, and then he leaves them, right? And he repents. But in the end, except Judas, they all died for the Lord. They all were persecuted for Christ. They were all faithful to Christ. They went from hiding in fear to be willing to die for the message that God had revealed to them. That speaks to their sincerity. And then the third external evidence that the Bible is truly God's word is the indestructibility of the Bible. The indestructibility of the Bible. If if you have ever shared the Bible with anybody, you know what I mean. The Bible has suffered more vicious attacks and attempts to destroy it than any other book in history. Far, bar none. The Bible has suffered many, many years of vicious attacks from the early Roman emperors like Diocletian to the communist dictators, the modern-day atheists. The Bible has withstood a constant onslaught from detractors. And yet it still stands today. We still hold it in our hands today. It endures. And is still, even today, the most widely published book in the world. That doesn't happen by coincidence or accident. Throughout history, skeptics have regarded the Bible as mythological. But you know what? Archaeology has confirmed everything that is said to be historically true. Even when the archaeologists, archaeologists in some digs were digging in a certain location and some Bible scholar said, you know what, the Bible says that city's over here. Why don't you try digging over here? And the archaeologist kind of goes, eh, whatever, what do you know? I guess we're not having any luck over here. We'll go over. And guess what? They find the lost city. Okay, there's evidence of that over and over again because the Bible is true. The Bible is the word of God. Opponents have attacked its teaching as primitive, as outdated. But you know what? There's moral and legal concepts that have a positive influence on societies throughout the world. Where do you think our laws come from? It continues to be attacked even today in our modern society as pseudoscience. Psychologists attack it. Political movements attack it. Yet it remains just as true and relevant today as it was when it was first written. This should not surprise any of us. 
I mean, Jesus said in Mark 13, 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but what? But my words will never pass away. That's a promise from the Lord of Scripture. The Bible, unique among books, has transformed countless lives and swayed whole cultures. We have missionaries down in Papua New Guinea today, the kennels. And when they first went to Papua New Guinea, they were met with literal headhunters. People would have, who would have killed them without even thinking twice. And yet today, because of their diligence in 30, 40 years of ministry there, there's whole tribes now that get along. There's no more warring. Why? Because they know Christ. They know the Prince of Peace. They're Christians. They don't even need a missionary anymore because they, they know the Lord. It's, it's the power of God's word. And the one thing that they've been diligent to do down there is to what? They didn't go down and just feed them and give them clothes to wear and, and try to conform them to our society. No. What they do, they taught them the word of God. And even today, in their 80s, they're down there translating portions of the scripture for them. So they can have a completed copy of God's word, both Old and New Testament. I mean, we take that so for granted. We pick up this book, you know, once a week and bring it to church, dust it off, bring it to church. And maybe, maybe we look at it the rest of the week, maybe we don't. This is God's word, beloved. We should be in this every day. And after looking at the evidence, one can, one can say, without a doubt, that God has spoken. And that this, this Bible that we hold in our hands is truly God's word. Now remember where we started last, last week. We started with the good news, the conduct of the Thessalonians. And he says there in verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this, and we reflected back on it was their working faith, their laboring love, their enduring hope from from chapter 1, verse 3. But we also listed five reasons why Paul is being thankful here currently for the Thessalonians. We said that they received the message of the gospel. They accepted the word of God. The word of God performed its work in them. They imitated other believers, verse 14, and they endured under persecution. And so we asked the question, what does it mean to believe the Bible? I mean, I'm sure if we went around the the room today, most of you would say, well, yeah, I believe the Bible. But what does that mean? How does that apply to our lives? And last week we said, first of all, that believing the Bible means accepting its authority in every area of our life. We have to believe, beloved, that not only Christ, but his word is sufficient Right? For our spiritual needs. And yet so many times our practice does not prove that. If we want to know something or or we want to find something out, what do we do? We go to the Christian bookstore. We go on Amazon and look for a Christian book somebody wrote that will help us. Go to the word of God first. It is sufficient. Completely sufficient. And the Thessalonians believe that. It says that they received the word of God. And they also accepted the word of God. And we shared this message last week. And we said how the words received and accepted are similar, but they're a little different. The first one, when they received the word of God, that, re- that 
That relates to their ears. They heard it. They heard the word of God preached from Paul and Timothy and Silas. And then secondly, it says they accepted the word of God. Well, what does that refer to? It's it's the idea of appropriating what goes in through your ears to your heart. So one has to do with your ears. The other one has to do with your heart. And so we saw the conduct of the Thessalonians and how that was good news to Paul after he had been gone for so long. And Timothy brought back this wonderful report that they were growing strong. And it was because they received and accepted the word of God. For them it became the living word. And the living word convicts, it converts, it cleansed, it changed them to a degree that they had never known before. They came out of a pagan background. Their pagan gods didn't do this for them. The word of God did. The gospel that was preached to them. I mean, we always get nervous when we go out and we witness and we we try to share our faith, right? But you know what? If you have the right perspective, if you have the perspective that, you know what? If I go out and I share the word of God with somebody, I'm done. (laughs) I'm done. God will take that word and implant it or transform or change that person's life in time. Because we believe that God's word always performs his purposes in the lives of all who believe. It always does. And yet we, we live like it's just something that's you know, part of our Christian routine. I mean, this book should kind of be like oxygen to us, in all honesty. I mean, if I sucked all the oxygen out of this room right now, I mean, we, we wouldn't last very long, right? Why? Because we need it. We need it to live. We need it to sustain life. It's the same for the Word of God. And just to go through this list here, a couple things, I think I put that on there. First of all, it saves 1 Peter one twenty two. Let me just read these verses. You can look them up if you want. But 1 Peter one twenty two says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Well, how can we do that? Then he says in verse 23, Since you have what? Been born again. And then he tells us how. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. What does he mean by that? He explains it through the living and abiding word of God. And then in verse 24, he gives an illustration. For all flesh is like grass in all its glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. Verse 25, but the word of the Lord, what? Remains forever. Forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is how we are saved. It's also effective. In Isaiah 55, verse 11, it says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, the Lord proclaims. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The word of God is effective. It saves. But it also sanctifies. John 17, 17, Jesus said this, Sanctify them in the truth. Then he says, Your word is 
truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify means to set apart, to purify. It also matures. 1 Peter 2 2, like newborn infants, long, it says, crave, have an undying desire for the pure spiritual milk. Why? That you that by it you may grow up into salvation. The problem with the church today is we have a bunch of baby Christians running around that are unwilling to invest time and study the Word of God. They just want to come to a church and hear somebody pontificate on whatever makes them feel good and then leave and come back next week. That's not going to do it. I don't care who the preacher is. If, if you're just relying on the preacher Sunday morning to make you you know, happy spiritually the rest of the week, you're sadly mistaken. It will not happen. You have to be in it for yourself. You have to be willing to invest time and effort. That's how you will grow. That's how you will mature. But it also frees us. John 8, 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, so they, they believed Christ, if you abide in my word, in other words, if you remain in my word, it's not a one-time shot, it's a continuous action. He says, you are truly my disciples. So he's telling Jews who broke away from Judaism and followed Christ, you know what? We'll see. <laughs> He didn't pat him on the back and say, hey, welcome to the church. No, he, he said, well, we're going to kind of just wait a little while and see how, if this is real or not. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Verse 32, and you will know the truth. And what does he say? The truth shall what? Set you free. The truth shall set you free. The word of God will set you free. You say, from what? From whatever is holding you captive. It's unlimited. Whether that's anxiety. Whether that's marital strife. Whether that's financial distress. Whether that's addictive behavior. See, we've gotten away from this today. And we say, well, you know, the word of God isn't sufficient for that. So, you know, let's, let's invite this 12-step group into our church. And, and we'll let all the, the um, alcoholics and drug addicts gather together and, and talk about, you know, um, how bad they are. Now, Alcoholics Anonymous has, was started kind of with a God perspective. But if you're familiar with it all today, it's... it's Gone far from that. As a matter of fact, if you're a, a bold Bible believing Christian and you're part of AA, I guarantee you, you're muzzled. Because if you stand up for what's true and what's right, people aren't going to like it because they embrace everything, unfortunately. Modern day psychology, the whole thing. So you either have to go that route, or you believe the word of God can actually affect change in people's lives. And I'm sure we could go around the room and have testimony after testimony. Yes, the word of God will do it. This program didn't do it. That program didn't do it. But it's when I got into the regular reading of God's word and memorization and studying and understanding who I am in Christ, then I wasn't 
so easily swayed by Satan's tendencies and and practices and temptations because I knew who I was in Christ. This is the problem with so many in the church. They don't know who they are in Christ. It frees us from all of that, but it also perfects us. 2 Timothy 3.16-17, to all Scripture is God-breathed, out of God, out from God, and profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be what? Complete, equipped for every good work. This happens through the Word of God, all Scripture. Not just the words in red. That's something they added later. Okay, we don't need to to, to do that, but that's fine. But it perfects us. It says that we may be complete. That's the idea. That we may be mature, that we may be what God wants us to be. That we're equipped for every good work. And by the way, you should have good works in your life. You're not saved by good works. But the Bible says that before we even got saved, God prepared for us what good works, that we should walk in them. If you're a believer here today and you don't see any good works in your life, you might want to reevaluate your salvation, frankly. The word of God perfects us. But Psalm 119, verse 24, it says, Your testimonies are my delight. They are my what? Counselors. The word of God counsels us. You know, this is a touchy subject for many. But it is what it is. Today, unfortunately, in the church psychology and secular thought has so much invaded it that you can go to, quote, Christian counseling and basically all you're going to is a psychologist who's a Christian. And they basically have the same answers as everybody else. So if you're looking for counseling, I would, I would ask you to avoid, avoid, quote, Christian counselors. Go to a biblical counselor. You say, what's the difference? The difference is a a Christian counselor is somebody that takes Freud and all the the secular understanding of our mind and all that. And then basically, because they're a Christian, they call themselves a Christian counselor. They apply that plus maybe a couple verses here and there. A biblical counselor is completely different. You go to a biblical counselor, number one, usually they're free. Today's economy, that's good news, right? I mean, most biblical counselors do not charge. You go to a Christian counselor, man, they're, they're getting anywhere from 50 to 100 bucks an hour for you to lay on their couch and, well, you know, when I was little, I did this. And that. Okay, well, we'll see you next week. Here, read this, do this workbook or whatever. A biblical counselor will listen to whatever you have to say, and then they'll say, you know what? Here's what the Word of God says. Okay, you have, you have a problem with, with uh, pornography, you have a problem with lust or whatever, here's what the Word of God says. You have a problem with addictive behavior, here's what the Word of God says. You have a problem with your marriage and relations, here's what the Word of God says. 
That's what a biblical counselor would do. And if we're going to hold up and have a high view of God's word, why wouldn't we do that first? I'll tell you why. You know why a lot of people go to Christian counselors? Just my experience? They like to share their their problems with other people. And they probably run out of friends because they shared them with all their friends, and their friends are tired of hearing of all their problems. So now they got to pay somebody, and then they go and they dump all their problems on them, and then they leave, and they come back the next week. They want to do that. We all like to share our issues. See, a biblical counselor says, hey, wait a minute. What's the word of God say? Let's change your mindset. Let's change your behavior. When you leave a biblical counselor's office, inevitably, you'll have homework to do. (laughs) You'll have verses to read. You'll have something to, to work on. So the next time you come, we're not going over the same problem again. Because the word of God is sufficient. That's what a biblical counselor does. So it counsels us. Acts 20, 32 says, And now I commanded you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Acts 20.32 says that the word of God is able to build us up as believers. I mean, are you feeling weak spiritually? Are you feeling like, wow, you're just dragging yourself in here Sunday after Sunday and you're not seeing any change, you're not seeing anything? But you know, it's that guilt from maybe your previous religion or whatever. I got to go to church. It's not doing any good, but I just got to go to church. See, if the word of God is not building you up daily, There's something wrong. There's something wrong. Because it says it's able to build you up in your spiritual walk. There's too many Christians walking around with their heads down, just beaten up by this world. And we need to stop and we need to start remembering what the Scripture says. What the Scripture says about the ones that we face who are in opposition to us. You know, we hear all this talk about spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare. Well, Ephesians 6.12 states it rather clearly. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against powers and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Is there spiritual warfare? Definitely. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us, <clears throat> be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But it says, resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. 2 Corinthians 2.11 tells us that Paul writes, in order that No advantage be taken of us by Satan. Don't allow him to take advantage of you. For we are not ignorant about his schemes. I wish that were so true. 
But there's so many believers who basically don't read the Bible, so they, they don't understand the schemes of Satan. Second Corinthians 3.3 3 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If you know Christ here today, your mind, your eyes have been unblinded. They have been unveiled. Second Corinthians 11.3, But I am afraid, lest as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's Satan's scheme. Lead us astray. He can't perish us to hell as believers, but he, he can get us off message. Well, listen to these verses, Romans 16, 20, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He's a defeated foe. We don't have to cower. I'm tired of hearing Christians saying there's a demon under every rock. It's ridiculous. They're more focused on casting out demons and and controlling Satan than they are investing in their own Christian well-being. 1 John 4, 4, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Do you hear that? Also, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 to 14, he says, concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain Since you have become, look at what it says, dull of hearing, Hebrews 5.11. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to, to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food, solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The word of God is the way that God affects change in a believer's life. We can't make excuses for our own spiritual immaturity. I mean, we want to, as a church, provide a platform for you to grow. But part of that is is you, you have to partake of it. You know, when you have a newborn baby, you don't just throw a stake in the crib and say, yeah, good luck with that, pal. Right? We don't, we don't do that. Why? Because a newborn baby wouldn't know what to do with a steak. But you also wouldn't bring a, a little bottle of warm milk to your husband at dinner time either. <laughs> Why? Because he's mature. We need to be reminded of that. It, it builds us up. It ensures next our spiritual success, the word of God does. In Joshua 1, 
Verse 8, it says, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And then it says this, For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have what? Good success. Have I not commanded you, verse 9 says, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Those are good words for us today in the world in which we live. The word of God ensures our spiritual success. Psalm 1, verses 2 and 3 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a a tree firmly planted by the streams of water that yields up its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And then it says, in all that he does, he prospers. Does the Bible speak of prospering? Does the Bible speak of prosperity? It sure does. It's a little different format than what you hear on TV today. All for the prosperity gospel. It's not that kind of prosperity But it's a prosperity that's ensured to us by the word of God. And then it also gives hope. Psalm 119, verse 47. He says, I rise before the dawn and I cry for help. You ever had a day like that? You get up and you're just like, oh man, Lord, help me out here. I got so much going on. And then he says this. I rise before the dawn and I cry for help. I hope in your words. When's the last time you woke up and read some scripture and said, man, I'm ready to go now. This is good. This is going to be a good day. My hope is in the Lord. Why? Because you went to the word of God. It gives us hope. In spite of its claims to the contrary, human wisdom, on the other hand, cannot produce any of those results. Not one. Human wisdom falls, falls flat every time. And I want to ask you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and look at verse 18 with me because Paul basically is inspired by the Holy Spirit here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18. And he gives kind of a testimony on the emptiness, if you will, the folly of human, of human wisdom. Look at what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly. It's a mockery, you could say, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is what? It's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age, Paul's asking? Has not God made foolish The wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, 
For the foolishness of God is wiser, there it is, than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, the Thessalonians understood this. They progressed spiritually because they savingly believed the message of the cross. They just didn't have it up here in their head. It just didn't penetrate their ears. It went right to their heart. And that belief powerfully affected their everyday lives. It wasn't a little thing for a Jew to come to Christ. Even today it's not. You're going to be ostracized by your family, your friends. If you have a business, it probably won't be around very long. It's a big deal. Well, even so, back then. And Paul was thankful for the reality, just as he was later even for the Colossians and their reception of the word. He wrote in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, if you, it is constantly, speaking of the word of God, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing since you also, in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. See, the, the, the response from the Thessalonians was overwhelming once they heard the message. They welcomed it. They were thrilled by it. They were eager and desirous to have more of it. Well, that's the good news. That's the good news. Well, what about the sad news? Look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Here it is. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Believing the Bible means accepting its authority in every area of our life. But secondly, verse 14, believing the Bible means accepting the opposition it brings. (laughs) The opposition it brings. See, there are Romans 12, 16, or 10, 16, Romans 10, 16 says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. See, there are certain segments of our friends in society who have not obeyed the gospel. Spurgeon says of the word of God, he said this, this is the revelation of God, and I will die sooner than I will ever by any action of mine permit permit a doubt to be cast upon it. Wow. See, believing the Bible means accepting its authority in every area of your life, but it also means accepting the opposition that authority brings. I mean, if you believe the Bible wholeheartedly, you're going to have some strong pushback. You're going to have even some enemies. See, when Paul uses the word countrymen there, he uses a word that is absolutely unique. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. And it means the people closest to you. If you decide to believe the Bible is the word of God, many people who are close to you, guess what? They, they won't have anything to do with you anymore. They won't share the faith that you have. And in our culture today, nobody likes to be unpopular. Amen? 
I mean, how many of you wake up today going, man, I just hope I'm unpopular with everybody I meet today? No, that's not the way we live. You know, we, we don't want to be unpopular with people. I mean, even in our own church sometimes, I mean, well-meaning folks on occasion said, you know, Pastor, you shouldn't speak so boldly about certain sins. You shouldn't be so bold on, on certain things because you're going you're gonna to turn away people from the church. You, you have a risk of offending people. And we're, we're trying to reach the people, not offend them. I had one individual one time tell me, you know what, if I invited my friends to, to hear a message of yours, they would walk out. You know what I said? I really don't care. I'm not here to please your friends. I mean, I don't want to be offensive to anybody. That's not my goal. But the word of God says the message of the cross is already an offense. So either you're going to get rid of the cross and the message of the cross and just kind of have a little social group every week. Or you're going to do what God calls us to do and be the church. I mean, I understand that concern. Sometimes when I look out and there's visitors or family invited, a family member, and I'm preaching on something, I'm thinking, oh, Lord, how am I going to get through this? Because if this is the first thing they're hearing from my, my lips, they're probably not, never going to come back. I remember on a Wednesday night one time we had a visitor and we were dealing with the judges and part of the text had to do with God cutting up these women. and It was just a disgusting part of scripture, but we went through it. And I almost felt like I had to apologize, right? It's like, well, we don't do this every week. I mean, this isn't you know, what we focus on every week. Because we don't want to be unpopular. We want our message to be light. And I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that there are people here, even in our own community of Redwood City, that don't care very much about Grace Bible Church. Probably some of you have heard it commented when you say, where do you go to church? Oh, we go to Grace Bible Church. Oh, you go to that church? That's how they say it. They don't mean it as a compliment. See, our deepest commitment is to the word of God. It's not to men. It's not to be light. I mean, we don't want to purposely offend people. We pray people will come back. But we pray that they'll come back because they're hearing the truth, that God's drawing them back. I mean, it would be better if everybody in Redwood City loved us. But they don't. They, because they don't like the message. I mean, I have pastors in this town that don't care for us. If they despise us for telling the truth about things like homosexuality and abortion and other things, hey, so be it. If they think we're narrow-minded and bigoted, well, so be it. The truth is much different. We know that to be true because we're here. This church is filled with people who love God and love people. As a church, we don't hate anyone. We welcome everyone in Redwood City, regardless of their lifestyle, to attend our church. And we've had people from all kinds of lifestyles attend our church in the past. Our doors are open to all people without exception. 
But our deepest, com- our deepest commitment is to the word of God. And we will preach it, and we will teach it, and we will proclaim it, because it is the only hope for our dying world. And you know what? Believing the Bible means accepting the opposition it brings. Very clear. Those in Scripture who stood for Christ stood in the midst of opposition, of persecution of the threat of death and of death itself. And yet they were willing. They were willing to trust God for the outcome. Next week we'll look at believing the Bible means accepting its judgment, its judgment on society. How does this relate to our modern day society? How does this relate to what we're seeing going on all around us? I heard a commentator the other day on a news broadcast that basically said dealing with the whole Roe versus Wade controversy, right? They basically said if abortion is not available, you know, that's that's really a slap in the face of the everyday person because and this was their argument. They said with with inflation and everything, it costs so much. What are they going to do? I mean, they should be able to freely abort their children if they can't afford them. That's what she said, basically, in a nutshell. It was shocking. And the guest who was interviewing didn't didn't even balk. They said, well, yeah, that's true. Well, where does that stop? You know, I heard somebody say, well, does that stop just when it's in the fetus? What if it's out of the fetus and it's three years old and you can't afford it? Well, you just kill the baby then? See, we're, we're, we're in a war for the soul of our nation. And I would pray that you would definitely be not only building yourself up spiritually through the word of God, through the opportunities you have each week here on this campus, but also spending time in prayer for our leaders, for our country. We're really at a turning point. And we really need to commit this to the Lord wholeheartedly and ask God to intervene. I don't think it's over. We're still here. It's not over till we're gone, in my mind. So, you know, we, we need to continue to pray for those few elected officials who are believers in Washington and that they could affect change somehow for the future of our country. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is powerful, that it is effective sharper than a two-edged sword. And Lord, we, we know that it's doing a divine work in our lives because every time we spend time with it, every time we read it, every time we have a devotion in it, every time we, we give a portion of our time, which is limited to the word of God, there's, there's no better place that we can spend our time than sitting before you going through Scripture. And Lord, asking you to show us, what, what does this mean? How do I apply this? Father, I, pr- I pray, Lord, that as believers that we would regain our desire. That you would give us a new desire, a fresh desire. That desire for milk like a newborn baby has. That we, we can't go another minute without it. Without being taught it, without reading it, without hearing a message about it. 
without committing it to our minds and our hearts through memory. Without share, let us not have another day go by without sharing the word of God with someone. Father, because it affects change in people's lives, including ours. And Lord, we pray today, if there's any here today who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, that they would understand that it's, it's not good enough just to believe the gospel. The Bible says that you have to obey it. You have to turn from your sin to the Savior, acknowledging your own inadequacies, acknowledging your own inabilities to save yourself. And when you do that, you humbly lay down your sin at the foot of the cross and you proclaim your allegiance to your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will save you. He will change you. He will give you divinely the Holy Spirit to live within you. For the first time, you will open your eyes when you read the Bible, and you actually be able to perceive and understand the words of Scripture. The Bible says the natural man can't comprehend this book. Without divine enablement, it's impossible. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have given us this time here this morning. We pray for our fellowship time across the way, that you would bless it, bless the food for our bodies, and just bless this upcoming week that we would be a blessing to all around us, that we would proclaim Christ, that we would be the light of the world. We thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.